If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to stay in the know about what's happening with the History Extra podcast, then check out our brand new Podcast Club page at historyextra.com forward slash podcast hyphen club. There, I'll be bringing you updates and sneak peeks from behind the mic, letting you know what we've got coming up and suggesting some fascinating further reading on the topics that we're discussing. Plus, you can submit the burning questions you'd like to see answered by experts in our Everything You Want to Know series. Just head to historyextra.com forward slash pod hyphen club to find out more. That's historyextra.com forward slash pod hyphen club. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Between the 1890s and the 1920s, an estimated 12 to 13 million immigrants arrived in the US via Ellis Island. But who were these immigrants? What did they have to do to be admitted to the country? And did officials really change their surnames to make them sound more American? To answer your questions on Ellis Island for today's Everything You Want to Know episode, I spoke to Professor Vincent Canato, a historian at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, who wrote a book, American Passage, The History of Ellis Island. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about the history of Ellis Island. I want to start us off with a really useful question that we've had in um, from Solyanichi Garayas on Facebook, who has asked, for those who don't know, what is Ellis Island? Well, it's an island, obviously. It's an island in uh, in the United States at the sort of mouth of the Hudson River in New York Harbor between the island of Manhattan and New Jersey. And uh, it's a small island, but it's famous and it's a big topic in history because for a few decades, it was the main immigrant processing center in the United States. So Marina on Instagram has asked, when was Ellis Island first used and when was the peak of its operation? 
Yeah, the the peak, we're really talking about 1890s into the 1920s. That's the peak period of Ellis Island history. Uh, That's a peak period of this uh, major wave of immigration. Uh, Immigration to the United States comes in waves. There was a wave in the mid-1800s of Irish and Germans. The Ellis Island era is like the second wave of, of immigration and Currently, we're kind of in a third wave of immigration to, today. So that's the peak period of, of Ellis Island's operations as an immigration processing center. And when did it open as a processing center? Yeah, 1891. Ellis Island is known to a lot of people as the gateway to America. Can you explain that? So in order to get into the United States during this period, you had to be processed by the federal government. You had to be inspected, you had to be interviewed, and then if you pass the exams, you would be allowed into the country. During the period we're talking about from the 1890s to the 1920s, 75% of immigrants coming to America would have gone through Ellis Island. So that's why we so associate Ellis Island with the gateway to America. There were other gateways. Most ports in America had an immigration processing center. None were as large as Ellis Island, none were as grand as Ellis Island, and none processed the number of immigrants at Ellis Island. So you said 75% of immigrants at this time came through Ellis Island. So that's a huge amount. Do we have any sense how many migrants came through Ellis Island in total? Yeah, the specific number is kind of hard to, to pin down for a variety of reasons, but we usually say about 12 to 13 million during this period. I mean, there were some immigrants who came and went and came and went. There were some people who came through that were not immigrants themselves. They were just sort of travelers or just visitors. Um, but yeah, about 12 to 13 million is a good, a good estimate. With those huge numbers, is it fair to say that a lot of people in America today could probably trace their origins back to Ellis Island? The statistic that gets bounced around a lot, and I tried to look into this and see how true it was, and I, I, I couldn't you know, I, I couldn't factor, but it, it makes sense is 40% of Americans have at least one ancestor who passed through Ellis Island. Wow. Okay. So we're talking about a lot of people here. One of the things that people search for on the internet when they're looking up Ellis Island is why people came through Ellis Island. So to broaden that out a bit, what were some of the motivations for migrating to America in the period that we're talking about the late 19th and the early 20th centuries? Historians like to talk about push and pull factors, that immigrants are kind of pushed out of their country for certain reasons, and then they're pulled or attracted to America. The biggest pull factors attract immigrants were, one, the economy. This is the era of the second industrial revolution. So the factories, the mines, you know, railroad building, bridge building, subway building, all of this was going on in the late 19th, early 20th century, and it all required manual labor. Um, so this pulled immigrants in. There were economic opportunities. There were jobs uh, attracting them to the United States. And they were also attracted by general ideas of freedom, right? Religious freedom, political freedom. Um, the countries they came from often did not have these kinds of freedoms. So the economic factors plus the political factors were pulling immigrants in. Uh, what was pushing immigrants out of their countries varied from group to group. Um, take uh, Russian Jews, for instance. I mean, they're pushed out because of the pogroms, because of anti-Semitism in Russia. Uh, Russia was not a very uh, welcoming place for Jews at this time, so that pushes them out. Uh, For other immigrants, it was economic factors in their homelands, uh, extreme poverty, sometimes natural disasters. So these push and pull factors are creating this wave of immigration during this period. And I think we're going to spend a lot of this podcast talking about those migrants and sharing some of their stories. But before we move on to that, we have a couple of questions about Ellis Island as a place. So Julie Brummel on Instagram has asked, what was on Ellis Island before it was used for immigrants? Was there anything there? Uh, Well, today the island is about 27 and a half acres, but most of that is landfill. It's man-made. So the original island was about two and a half to three acres. It was a pretty tiny island, kind of a rocky outpost there. Uh, it was an island in the midst of, of one of the most fertile oyster beds in the in the country, if not the world. Uh, and its name, one of its earlier names was Little Oyster Island. But it, starting in the eight, early 1800s, the uh, U.S. military built a fort there. 
So it was a fort, it was a garrison, it was a munitions depot uh, for the U.S. military before it became Ellis Island. It was also a place, this is um, where uh, pirates were hanged. So um, it was uh, another name was was Gibbet Island, and this is a place where uh, pirates who were arrested for piracy were were hanged, were, were put to death. Quite an interesting history. Then on your point about it being a fort, Zeus on Instagram has asked what the strategic significance was of Ellis Island for immigrant processing. Why was it chosen? Yeah, I, I like the idea of strategic because there was an element of strategy to it. The previous immigrant processing center in New York was at was in Battery Park, which is the tip of Manhattan Island. Uh, and that was very easy to access for people in New York. The problem there is there were also a lot of people who were coming there to take advantage of the immigrants coming in. So sending the processing off to an island kind of protected the immigrants from some of these hustlers who were going to take advantage of them. It also sort of insulated some of the processing that was done. Not that they were hiding anything, but I think it was easier to do the work that they were doing if it was on an island. Um, There were certainly people who were allowed there to witness what was going on. There were uh, representatives of immigrant aid societies who were stationed at Ellis Island. So it wasn't done in secrecy. Uh, but you did not have, you know, large numbers of the public crowding in. It's it kind of the fact it was an island protected it somewhat. And just in terms of logistics, would most of the immigrants then arrive on boats and then be taken on boats directly to New York? These are large ocean uh, steamships, so they could not go into the um, the dock at Ellis Island. They would have to dock in Manhattan first, then take a ferry from Manhattan to Ellis Island. And then when they were done and had been uh, admitted to the country, they would either take a ferry back to Manhattan or they would take a ferry over to the New Jersey side, take trains uh, out west, depending on where they were going. And now we've got another question from Google. What does Ellis Island look like? If if you took a kind of an aerial photograph, if you were flying above it, it looks like a giant letter C. Um, so it's a there's um, there's the main area on the north of the main building. Then there's the dock, and then the bottom part of the C, the south side, is filled with buildings that were mostly the medical, uh, the hospital quarantine sections. There are probably around two to three dozen buildings on the island. Uh, most of them dealing with the medical side. Uh, the most famous building is on the north side of the island. That's the main building. That's the part that's the museum. Mm-hmm. So it's fairly grand, fairly large. Yes. And the, the architecture is also grand. Uh, and that's an important factor in, in, in the States in the this period of the 1890s, early 1920s. Uh, many public buildings were built in a grand style, uh, kind of a Beaux-Arts style, it was called. Uh, and it was designed to impress. And so immigrants who came, uh, this isn't, wasn't a warehouse they came to. They came to an amazingly grand, uh, beautiful building. So let's talk a bit now about those immigrants. So who were these new arrivals and and where were they coming from largely? So this period of immigration, if, if the Irish and Germans came in the mid-1800s, the first one, this was largely, not exclusively, an immigration of Southern and Eastern Europeans. So the three largest ethnic groups there are, you know, nationalities that came were Italians, um, Jews, mostly from Russia, and those coming from Central Europe, the old uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. So Southern, Eastern, Central Europeans, those were the main immigrants coming in. But there were still Irish immigrants. There were still German immigrants. There there were English immigrants, Scottish immigrants. Uh, There were immigrants from the Middle East. We had immigrants from Turkey, Lebanon, Syria, Uh, These were mostly, these would not be Muslim immigrants. Uh, They were mostly either Christians, Arab Christians, or Jews who were living in that area. Uh, And there was also a a fairly small but not insignificant number of uh, black immigrants who came from the Caribbean. They would have come from Jamaica, Barbados, Martinique, uh, islands in the Caribbean. uh, And about 100, 115,000 immigrants from there would have come in the early 1900s. And can we make any generalizations about the economic profile of these immigrants? Were they working people or were they people with money to spare? Yeah, generally, I think when you're talking about immigrants, you're never talking about the poorest of the poor, whether it's today or in past times. Uh, 
people who immigrate tend to be a step above. Uh, you needed a little bit of money to be able to buy a steamship ticket, for instance, and to bring your family over. So these were people that, that had some kind of get up and go, as we sort of say. Uh, they were not wealthy. Uh, most of them did not were not highly skilled, like professional types. Uh, there were a couple, few in there, but you know, eighty to ninety percent of them would have been unskilled to semi-skilled laborers. And so not the very bottom, not the poorest, the poor, kind of the step up um, from there. People with uh, either farmers, uh, just laborers. My ancestors that came through were stonemasons. That was their skill that came over. A lot of Italian immigrants were, were masons. So that was that was their, their skill. And they came over and did that here in the States. And so most of these uh, immigrants, they were arriving into New York, but did they have destinations far beyond that? Yes. So many immigrants stayed in New York or the New York area. That was definitely a prime. But you had immigrants going up to New England, for instance. Uh, and then you had many immigrants going, taking trains out west. Think about Pennsylvania, Ohio. These were where you had steel mills and mines uh, and other factories that needed these laborers. So they would head out that way. One place that immigrants didn't go to a lot at this period was the South. Um, you know, you still had a kind of backward economy, you had Jim Crow in the South. Um, this was not a very appealing, it was not an economically advanced part of the country, didn't have a lot of industrialization at the time. So it was not attracting a lot of immigrants. Okay. So now we've got a question from Diana Bryant, um, who got in touch on Facebook. And she asked what percentage of immigrants were men, women and family units? Can we break it down? Uh, yes. Uh, you're looking at a period of time where uh, more men are emigrating than women. Uh, and that's one reason for that is it's primarily labor related, economic related, right? These were men coming over, single men coming over to work and to make money. Um, some of them would work for a time here and then go back home and bring money back to their families at home. Others would um, make money here in the States and then after a couple of years, have enough money to bring the rest of their family over. Uh, so you did not have a lot of, I mean, there were some people who came as families, but most uh, who came were single men, and then they would later bring their family units over. If you, if you look at immigration today, it's much more 50-50, maybe even a little bit more female than, than, than male. Um, but back then, it was more heavily male. So now we've got some questions on the workings of Ellis Island. And let's start with one from Marina on Instagram, who's asked how new arrivals were processed when they landed at Ellis Island. Yeah, it, it was a process. It was a very kind of thought out process of, of how do you take in on any given day, a few thousand immigrants, right? This is uh, especially in the peak periods in the spring and the fall. So you need to have a process. So the immigrants, once they landed on the island, they were always being watched. That's an important aspect of it. Because one misconception is that, oh, immigrants had these, you know, they got physicals and all this. You couldn't do that for thousands of people. It had to be very quick. So there's a lot of observation. There's a lot of eyes on the immigrants. Uh, is the immigrant stumbling or limping? Is the immigrant uh, hiding a hand that might be deformed? Is the immigrant muttering to himself or herself and maybe has some mental illness? Uh, then the immigrants would go single file and a single file line past doctors and inspectors. And they would also be looking, watching what's going on, uh, perhaps asking questions maybe with an interpreter there, uh, perhaps looking at, you know, feeling, touching the immigrant. This is a kind of an invasive process sometimes. Uh, if they thought there might be a problem with the immigrant, the immigrant was marked with chalk and it would be set aside for further inspections. If not, they were passed through uh, the inspection line. Then they would head to the registry clerk uh, who would have the, the ship's manifest, which was the list of all the passengers and fairly detailed questions that the immigrant would, would have filled out before leaving. And they would be interviewed and asked questions with an interpreter. Uh, and if everything panned out, the immigrant would be free to leave. If they thought there was a problem, there would be a sort of a, a hearing for the immigrant. So that was the process. And about 80% of immigrants 
got through in a couple of hours. That was it was not um, not a huge deal. Twenty percent were kept for further uh, medical inspection, intelligence testing, or a hearing, and in which the officials would decide whether these immigrants uh, should be allowed to enter or not. So that twenty percent that was held back. Um, let's talk about those two sides of why that might have been. So, firstly, the medical side of things. Um, what were they looking out for, and what might get you barred from entry into the country? Yeah, they're they're looking for for anything they can find. The the problem is this is you know they're they're not giving X rays or CAT scans or you know all these they, they're not doing any. They don't have those things obviously back then. Uh, so the the reason that most immigrants were sent back for the, the medical reasons that most immigrants were sent back for were kind of minor, but they were the ones that could be most easily spotted. One was an eye disease called trachoma. Uh, it's an inflammation on the back of an eyelid. It's sort of like conjunctivitis. Uh, it's contagious and it can lead to blindness. Uh, but what the what the inspectors and doctors would do would flip back the eyelids of immigrants to see if there was any inflammation back there. So that that was one of the things. And the other was a a disease called Fauvus, F A U V U S, and it's a disease of the hair. And it's not a very serious disease. It's just causes you to lose some hair. But again, losing hair is something that can be seen. It's sort of obvious as opposed to cancer, heart problems, um, which which are much more difficult to find. So what was the motivation there? Was it to stop any kind of infectious, contagious diseases spreading into the wider population in America? Or was it so that people didn't have to be supported by any kind of health system? Both. Yes. So one aspect is the idea of public health, right? We want to keep diseases out of the country. That's that's one aspect. And the second aspect is that immigrants should be self-supporting was really the idea behind this. So if an immigrant was sick, as you said, the idea was, well, they're sick, they're going to have to be taken care of by society, the larger society. Uh, The largest category of people to be sent back was not medical. It was something called likely to become a public charge or LPC. And that kind of captures that idea that immigrants should be self-supporting and not become public charges, not become wards of the state or wards of private charity. Uh, That whole idea of who's likely to become a public charge is kind of fraught with a whole lot of issues and how you decide who is and who isn't. Well, that's really interesting. What might get you branded an LPC, as you called it? Yeah. So a a number of things. There were... um, Immigrants who were sent back with hernia, but it wasn't a medical condition that got them sent back. It was the idea if you had a hernia, therefore you would not be able to do physical, hard physical labor. Therefore, you are likely to become a public charge. Uh, another group would be women and children. Let's say the husband, let's say the family does come over and the husband is declared, is, is kept out for some reason. Well, then the wife and the children are likely to become a public charge because in this day and age, right, the husband is responsible for taking care of the family. If he, you know, you can't just let a woman and children in by themselves. So they would be deemed likely to become a public charge. Were there any kind of moral reasons why people were deemed unsuitable or unfit, in quote marks, to to enter the country? Yeah, there's this category, moral turpitude. Um, And what I found was a lot of it had to do with ideas of morality and sexuality. So for instance, uh, say you had a couple, a man and a young man and a young woman came coming over together. And through the process of inspection, it was discovered that they were together, but not married. They would not be allowed to enter into the country, right? There were a lot of marriages that took place at Ellis Island. They'd be forced to marry. I always like to say, you know, it's it's Uncle Sam's shotgun wedding. You know, he's holding the shotgun and the two people have to get married if they want to come in. A woman being pregnant and not married would be an issue. Uh, Other issues of morality, um, whether women were prostitutes, for instance, and that's a, um, you know, prostitution is, I think we sort of know what prostitution is, but there's also kind of a vagueness about whether a woman is, you know, is a woman coming over uh, and spending time with a man? Uh, is she a prostitute is she, or is this a, just a, a, a relationship of consenting adults? I mean, there, there, there are some gray areas in there and I have a couple of these stories in the book. 
So yeah, so those issues, they, they, they're definitely on the lookout for, um, for people who are kind of violating basic ideas of uh, sort of Victorian sexual morality, which was standard in the late 19th and early 20th century. And so for those who were turned away, whether it was for medical reasons or, or moral reasons, what happened to them? Were they put straight back on a ship to where they came from? Pretty much. I should say the, the total percentage of immigrants arriving at Ellis Island who were eventually turned back is less than 2%. So 20% were, were held aside for further inspection, but most of those people got to land anyway. The total number of immigrants coming in, out of that number, less than 2% were turned back. And it was the responsibility of the steamship companies to, they would have to pay a fine and then ship those immigrants back. So if someone was deemed undesirable, which was the the term that was used, um, they would just find the next steamship from that steamship line that was heading back to the same port. And that immigrant would have to go back on that ship. So they wouldn't have to fund their own trip back then. And for those who did make it through, did they have to pay any money or make any declarations to be allowed in? So one thing is that there is what's called a head tax on every ticket and every steamship ticket sold. So it was built into the price of the steamship. Uh, the, the number changed over time, but it was it, it ended up at around four dollars per person. So that went right to the federal government. But that was part of the steamship ticket. Uh, so there was no other payment that needed to be made by the immigrant beyond that. Uh, However, there was at a time, uh, for a very short time, uh, the idea that immigrants had to have a certain amount of money on their persons, uh, $25. Now, that was never a law. It was only a rule very briefly at Ellis Island, and the rule got overturned. Uh, However, even after that, the the myth that you needed $25 to enter the country remained. and, and, And after this period, a lot of immigrants come over with $25. And the idea of having money was to show that you were not likely to become a public charge because you had money on you and you could take care of yourself until you found a job. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There's also a bit of myth around Annie Moore. She uh, was reported to have gone off to Texas and created a life for herself in Texas and then was killed when she was hit by a streetcar. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Julie Brummel on Instagram has asked a really intriguing question, which is what was the atmosphere at Ellis Island like? How did people feel and how did they behave when they were there? Hectic. 
<laughs> it was, you can only imagine how hectic and crazy it would have been with all of these people, you know, thousands of people uh, coming in, many of them speaking, you know, various languages. Uh, so chaotic, chaotic, hectic. There is a sense that we have that that immigrants are kind of victims. There's a whole kind of series of writings about immigrants who are just tossed into this horrible situation. My own view is I don't think we give immigrants enough credit. Uh, they're not, for the most part, helpless victims. They're for the most part, relatively intelligent adults. Many of them knew what they were getting into at Ellis Island because they had received word from people who had already gone through it. So they knew what to expect when they went through it. And uh, yes, for some, it could be harrowing, especially if you were put aside for inspection and deported. Uh, but I think for the most part, most immigrants got through it, went through it. Uh, they had inspector, uh, they had um, interpreters there who would help them with language problems. You had representatives from immigrant aid societies who were also there to assist immigrants and help them through the process, answer questions and so forth. Um, yeah. And, you know, and then there was also cases of immigrant fraud. I mean, immigrants would, would often sometimes lie. They knew the stories that they would have to tell in order to get past. Um, so I found certain instances of that. That's not most immigrants, obviously, but there were certain cases of it. So, yeah, I, I don't I think this this idea that these immigrants are just poor victims tossed in this horrible, unfeeling place. Um, for some, that that was the case. But for most, I, I think they were, um, you know, they were intelligent. They were motivated. Uh, many of them knew what the process was already because they had heard about it. And, um, you know, I, I, but definitely chaotic, definitely hectic, uh, noisy, you know. You, you mentioned interpreters there. Was there any understanding or expectation that immigrants would have to speak English to be let in? No. Uh, and after 1917, there was a literacy test. Immigrants would have to prove that they could read, but not in English, in their own language. So there was never a language test. Uh, the interpreters were there to help uh, help immigrants with, uh, you know, interpretation, but no, they were never required to, to speak English to enter the country. Jess Hughes on Instagram has asked who worked at Ellis Island. Are there any stories of people who processed the immigrants? Yeah, no, I've, I've got a number in my book. I have a number of stories of, um, of people who worked there and it's interesting. Uh, most of the staff were civil servants. This was the immigration service, did the right inspectors and the interpreters, and then the public health service had the doctors. These were so these were government um, you know, government bureaucrats, we would say, civil servants. And, and then the 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 top officials were political appointees, the commissioner, the assistant commissioner, uh, and these were more political folks who were put in by whatever administration. Um, yeah, they did not live on the island. That's uh, that's sort of a misconception. Most of them commuted over uh, to the island. I think for the most part, they were civil servants who were doing a job. They were professional. Uh, in the early days of Ellis Island, there was some corruption. There were some corruption cases, but uh, that got cleared up. And for the most part, during the peak period, there wasn't that much corruption. Uh, the interpreters, many of them were either immigrants or you know, children of immigrants, they were probably more sympathetic to the immigrants uh, coming over. Some of the people who worked, some of the doctors and inspectors, um, had various views on immigration. Some were anti-immigrant um, and others were pro-immigrant and then everywhere in between. They all had their their views of, of immigration. But overall, from what I saw, what I could see the records, that most of them were fairly professional in, in how they went about their jobs. Next up, we've got a question from Queen Eleonora on Instagram, who's asked, were last names really changed? And if so, why? So what she's alluding to here, I think, is the, the popular idea that people arrived at Ellis Island and the officials couldn't pronounce their names, so they just gave them a new English-sounding name. Did that really happen? That's the number one question we get uh, when we talk about this. And it's one of the most persistent myths. Uh, no, basically 99.8% of cases, names were not changed at Ellis Island. Uh, and the reason for that is that there was no process for legally changing names at Ellis Island. Right? They're, um, they're simply processing immigrants. They're, the, the only place where an immigrant's name would be written down were the ship's manifests. And those were created at the port of, of departure. 
And it was created by the steamship companies who wrote down the names and the officials at Ellis Island just read through them. Uh, so there was no place where they wrote your name down and said, here, here's your official paper, your official document. Uh, so that is definitely a myth, but it's a persistent myth. And there are some very funny stories, uh, jokes about this. There's the joke of um, the Jewish immigrant named Sean Ferguson who uh, arrives in the country, the story goes, and he's online and he's really nervous and he's really scared. And when they ask him his name, he's, he's so nervous that he responds in Yiddish, Schön vergessen, which is, I forgot. <laughs> and so the man writes down Sean Ferguson and gives him the paper. But that would never happen. That's not how the process went. But the, the myth is persistent because it's true that many immigrants' names were changed. Um, were shortened, were Americanized. Most of the cases of name changes were that the immigrants changed the names themselves. The immigrants wanted to Americanize, wanted to assimilate, were tired of people mispronouncing their names. Um, so they did that. Um, the, but there is a persistence, and I have a hypothesis, which I, I've never been able to prove. The one place where an official document with an immigrant's name was created was the process of naturalization. So five plus years down the road after arrival, you can petition to become a citizen. And that's the process of naturalization. Uh, and there, you know, that there's official paperwork being done. That's not done at Ellis Island. That's done at an immigration office somewhere, wherever. So perhaps I think there might have been some cases of, you know, unfeeling naturalization officers who might have written on naturalization papers a new name. But even in that case, it would be very small. Most were cases of immigrants who changed their own names. Thank you. I think that's a good bit of myth busting there. So next up, we have a question from the Possumator on Instagram, who's asked, what was the longest that anyone stayed at Ellis Island? From what we've said, it was a fairly quick process. But for example, if people were put in medical quarantine, would that see them stay there longer? Uh, yes. I don't have any sort of record of the person with the longest stay, but there's a story in, in, in my book of one of these incredibly long stays. It's a sad story of a young woman named Emma Zatello, and she and her family come over in February 1916. The family is admitted, but she is not. She is deemed, uh, quote unquote, an imbecile, uh, someone with low intelligence, uh, but it's World War One. So they're actually not shipping people back to Europe during World War I. So she is detained at Ellis Island, uh, at Ellis Island for a little over a year. And then she's sent to an immigration station in New Jersey. And then she's brought back to Ellis Island and she's sent home November of 1918. She's held by immigration, the immigration service uh, from February 1916 to November 1918. So that's about two and a half, more than two and a half years. Uh, it's a very sad story. Her her father petitions the government down into the 1930s to get her back, to get her into the States, and the government won't let her. And on the note of personal stories, Maria on Instagram has asked whether we know who the first and last people that came through Ellis Island were and whether we know about what happened to them. Yes, the first immigrant is a fairly well-known story. It's a woman named Annie Moore. And she was a young Irish girl coming over with her younger brothers. Uh, her father was already here. Again, a case of where the, the man comes first, uh, comes over first. And I looked at the steamship that she came in on, and uh, there were only about a dozen Irish immigrants on the ship. The rest of the immigrants were Russian Jews. And I suspect that she was chosen to be the first immigrant to come over. She was given a, a coin. There was, she was in the newspapers. There's a statue of her today, both at Ellis Island as well as uh, over in the port in Ireland. Um, so she's fairly well known. There's also a bit of myth around Annie Moore. She uh, was reported to have gone off to Texas and created a life for herself in Texas and then was killed when she was hit by a streetcar. Um, the truth of the matter is that she lived a fairly typical life for uh, immigrant women at the time. She married young, she had children, and she died young, and, and all in Manhattan. She never left Manhattan. But she was the first immigrant. Um, and as I say, it was a big deal at the time. It also tells you a little bit that 
by the 1890s, the Irish have become okay in terms of immigrants. 50 years earlier, the Irish were the bad immigrants, right? Oh, they're the new immigrants. So, But now in the 1890s, an Irish immigrant anymore is someone to be celebrated, as opposed to perhaps some of the other immigrants coming through. The last immigrant is not actually an immigrant. Uh, it's a Norwegian sailor, someone who was working on a steamship. I think his name is Arne Peterson. And he was detained. He tried to, he, he never went, he, he basically jumped ship and he was arrested and brought back. He was detained at Ellis Island. This is the 1950s. Um, and he's the last detainee at Ellis Island. Uh, and then he's, he's released when it's closed. He's released on parole. And I believe he went back to Norway on his ship. Well, I'm not certain. Now we've got a question that relates to something you alluded to earlier, that there were, of course, some black migrants that came through Ellis Island. And Rob C on Instagram has asked whether many um, black people migrated to the US voluntarily in this period, when, of course, as you say, Jim Crow was very much alive in the South. And if so, how were they treated? Yeah, as I said, about 100, 115,000 black immigrants, mostly from the Caribbean coming through. Uh, There is no Jim Crow in the immigration laws. So these black immigrants would have come through under the same laws as immigrants from Europe. Uh, There was no discrimination there. In fact, many of the leading figures of the Harlem Renaissance were immigrants from the Caribbean had come through Ellis Island. Claude McKay is a famous one. Um, So there is no Jim Crow in that sense. Also by the, um, by this period, black immigrants could naturalize. They could become naturalized citizens. Um, Whereas during this period, for instance, Asian immigrants could not become citizens, but black immigrants could become citizens. Most of these black immigrants were coming to the North. They weren't going to the South, Um, but they would have faced the usual prejudice and discrimination that that African-Americans would have found in the North during this period. Uh, The real kind of racialized prejudice in the immigration laws at this time was against Asians. It was very hard by this time because of the Chinese Exclusion Acts to come into the country from China and then eventually from the rest of Asia. Pretty strict restrictions uh, on, uh, in that sense. So would Asian immigrants be allowed through Ellis Island, but then just not allowed to naturalize in, as you say, five years? Or would they not be allowed past Ellis Island? First of all, most Chinese, most Asian immigrants would have gone through the West Coast. And San Francisco had its own immigration processing center called Angel Island. Um, Not that many Asian immigrants would have come all the way around um, into New York. But those that would have come uh, would have had to have proved that they could qualify for admission under the Chinese Exclusion Act. Uh, There were exceptions to the Chinese Exclusion Act. If you were a business person, uh, a diplomat, a teacher, not a laborer, uh, if you were related to someone who was already here, those are exclusions. So there were definitely um, some Chinese immigrants who could get through. Most of Chinatown in New York uh, was started by uh, Chinese immigrants who came from the West Coast, came east to New York. So yes, so there would have been some Chinese immigrants and they would have been allowed into the country if they could prove that they met the exceptions to the law. Mm -hmm. You mentioned something really interesting earlier, which was that by this era, the late 19th century, that Irish immigrants were seen as, quote unquote, the good immigrants. So can you tell us a bit about how other groups were viewed by the immigration service and by the wider American public, I guess? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a truism, unfortunately, that various immigrant groups are sort of tagged with undesirable characteristics over time. And then the longer they're in the country, the more they become accepted. Uh, During the period we're talking about here, Italian immigrants, they were were connected to crime and criminality, the mafia, or it wasn't called the mafia at this time, but the the black hand or the Camorra. Jews had their anti-Semitic stereotypes about Jews at this time. Broadly speaking, there was concerns about disease, concerned about uh, low intelligence, that perhaps these immigrants weren't smart enough, were going to bring down the overall intelligence of American society. Uh, they were going to bring disease over to the country. These are, and these crop up over time, they crop up today. Uh, these are kind of sort of common anti immigrant tropes. But just in terms of numbers, as you say, thousands of immigrants were coming through Ellis Island every day. Were there any concerns about the numbers of migrants arriving in America? Or was the American state keen to bring in more labor, more people? 
Yeah, I think what you find in American history today, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, is this kind of dance between different interests in the country. Business interests have always, almost always wanted to see more immigrants. It's good for business, right? It's a source of cheap labor. Uh, And then there, but there are other groups, unions, for instance, did not want to see more immigrants coming through because they were afraid it would drive wages down. Uh, other groups, native-born Americans, are concerned about cultural issues. Are immigrants going to assimilate? Is our country changing too fast? Um, so there's kind of a dance there between these different interests. Uh, in terms of numbers, there is not any attempt to sort of crack down on numbers until you get to the 1920s. So it's really World War One that brings about a kind of a it's a turning point in America. There's a disillusionment in the country after World War I. Um, there are lots of strikes in the country after World War I. There's the influenza outbreak, Red Scare, fear of, fear of uh, radicals, the Russian Revolution. So all these things begin to turn America more towards the restriction side. And then beginning the 1920s, there's going to be an attempt not just to kind of more tightly process immigrants, but also to bring down the total number of immigrants coming into the country. And that's when you get the quota system. And on a more positive note, um, C. Jacob on Instagram has asked whether you could share some success stories of migrants who came through Ellis Island and achieved, um, as he says in quote marks, the American dream. Yeah, that's sort sort of the stereotype that we find. I mean, for the most part, immigrants who come in during the Ellis Island period, even today, um, they achieve the American dream, but in their own way, a, a very modest American dream, right? It's the ability to raise a family and have uh, and, and hope that your children do a little bit better than you. Uh, but there were there are some uh, sort of famous Americans who came through Ellis Island. Uh, Bob Hope is a, the, the comedian, actor. Uh, Irving Berlin, the great songwriter, uh, was an immigrant. Uh, Frank Capra and Elia Kazan, two great movie directors, came through. Uh, Newt Rockney, the famous football coach from Notre Dame, the, if you remember Win One for the Gipper, the movie, uh, he was an immigrant. So there were a number of immigrants uh, who uh, who achieved fame afterwards, uh, who had come generally as as young uh, young children, who had come through Ellis Island. And were immigrants at the time aware of this kind of premise of the American dream that if they came to America, all of these um, great opportunities would open up for them? Yeah, there's a story at the Ellis Island Museum, a quote from an anonymous immigrant, and this idea of the, the, the streets of America were paved with gold. Uh, and when he, the, the story, the quote goes, uh, when this immigrant got there, he found out not only were the streets not paved with gold, they weren't paved and he was expected to pave them. <laughs> so there's this idea. Yeah, there's always this idea that America is this land of opportunity, the land of riches, it's a chance to be to, to make money and to become a success. I think that's always there. Uh, and for some, that is the case. But for most immigrants, I think it's, it's about a modest climb up the socioeconomic ladder. And then a, a, that climb up the socioeconomic ladder is also multi-generational. It's about your children then doing better and then their children doing better. So even though we have these cases of rags to riches, the Bank of America was started by an Italian immigrant, for instance. Uh, we have cases like that. But for most immigrants, it's about modest success, modest improvement of, of situations. So moving further into the 20th century, the Golden from Golden on Instagram has asked when and why Ellis Island became disused. Good question. Once the quotas come in in the 1920s, there's a lot fewer immigrants. Uh, And then it's not just quotas, but there's also the beginnings of the visa system, which we have today, right? If you want to emigrate to America today, you've got to go to the American consulate in your home country and apply for a visa. That's the primary inspection today. Uh, And that starts in the 1920s. So you don't really, after the 1920s, you don't need an Ellis Island anymore. It's not processing thousands of immigrants a year. I mean, certainly in the 1930s, you don't get that because of the Great Depression, you get very few immigrants coming in. So Ellis Island then, starting in the late 20s, becomes much more of a detention center. It's a place for immigrants who are being sent back to their home countries or being deported for them to be to be held before they're deported. It's a place for people who are coming into the country with a visa, but there's a problem with the visa and they've got to be detained. After World War II in the late 40s and early 50s, there were a number of uh, 
highly publicized cases of people who were defined there. Uh, we're now in the Cold War, so we have the we have anti-communism is big. So these were people who were believed to have been uh, were communists, um, and they're detained for a number of years, and, and their cases go to the Supreme Court. But it looks sort of bad, right? Ellis Island is a is a jail almost, and they don't really need it to process immigrants. So very quietly in 1954, the federal government closes down Ellis Island. They basically abandon it overnight almost. Um, there was just, there's stuff just left there for decades afterwards um, because it wasn't needed. They, we had the quotas, we had very low immigration, and those who did come over uh, would apply for visas. It, it was done through the American consulate. So it went out with a whimper rather than a bang. A big whim. Yes. If there can be such a thing as a big whimper. <laughs> yes, that's got an oxymoron. But yes, very quietly. Um, And you used to be a tour guide at Ellis Island. So what is it like to visit Ellis Island today? It's an impressive place, I'll say. I mean, first of all, it's beautiful because you are in New York Harbor and you've got beautiful views. Uh, you know, if you look just to the north and east, there's a, there's Manhattan, there's the skyline of Manhattan. If you look to the south, there's a Statue of Liberty right there. Uh, New York Harbor itself is, is a beautiful harbor. So it's a beautiful place to be. The main building in Ellis Island is beautiful. It's now an immigration museum, a museum to immigration history. Um, so it's, it's well worth a visit. On the south side of the island, most of those buildings remain, even to this day, remain abandoned. And the last decade and a half or so, there's been an attempt to renovate some of those buildings and bring tourists to those islands. I went over there about a decade ago and I got a tour of the south side. It's, it's beautiful because a lot of it was still abandoned. Uh, and yet they call them hard hat tours because you still have to wear hard hats to go in there because it's, they're not completely renovated. Um, but some of them are very eerie. Like you know, there's some quarantine buildings there that people were held at. There's, there's one building which is all the way on the south side of the island, which was basically for people who were dying. Uh, and out the window, you can see the Statue of Liberty. So you can think about some of the people who came over and died in these hospitals. One of the last things they saw was the Statue of Liberty through the, the window of, of their hospital room. You mentioned that your own family came through Ellis Island, or some of them did. What do you know about their stories? Yeah, I mean, my mother is what's called a JFK immigrant. She came over in the early 1960s by plane and landed at JFK Airport. But that's but on my father's side, uh, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, came over through Ellis Island in 1907, I think 1908, somewhere around there. And the interesting thing was he didn't talk much about Ellis Island, and I think because he went through pretty quickly. He was, you know, a young man. He, he knew where he was going. There was no issues. What he talked about was the steamship ride over because the steamship ride could take anywhere from 10 to 14 days. So it was a long ride. So that he talked a lot about. I think that made a bigger impression on him than Ellis Island uh, in that sense. He wasn't negative and he wasn't nostalgic about it, right, at Ellis Island. But the trip over was something he talked about quite a lot. That was Professor Vincent Canato. His book on this subject is American Passage, The History of Ellis Island. You can find a link in the show notes of this episode. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 